Do turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew in Matthew chapter 27. begin our reading in verse 50, and we will read through uh, verse 54. Matthew 27, verse 50 through 54. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Ascends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass and all its Glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Children, maybe some of you have visited our home. I think many of you have. And you'll know that at our house, Daria has a small swing set and playhouse uh, with an enclosure out back. Uh, Maybe you have played in that playhouse or gone down the slide when you visited. Uh, And inside of that enclosure, we've planted a small garden with all kinds of plants and flowers uh, to help attract hummingbirds and butterflies and all kinds of pollinators. And we have a little bench out there where we can enjoy God's creation. There's another kind of creature in that enclosure. They're easy to miss. If you're not looking carefully, because they're small, and they like to hide out under the plants and stumps. But if you were paying attention when you approached the playhouse, you would have seen a sign. And the sign reads, Beware of Tortoises. Now, it's meant to be a funny sign. It's meant to be ironic, because, of course, tortoises are completely harmless, And they're also so slow that even if they were harmful, you could get away easily. But the sign should have alerted you that there were tortoises present. And if you're paying attention, you might see a couple. That's what signs do. Whether it is a stop sign or a street sign or a deer crossing sign, signs are intended to alert you to something. They are intended to tell you that something is important. If you breeze through a stop sign, you're likely to get killed or to kill someone else. If you're not paying attention when you see a deer crossing sign, 
you might hit a deer. You might remember also that there's a sign uh, at the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, Pilate had made a sign and he put it over the cross and that sign read, King of the Jews. Now, when Pilate made that sign, he also meant it to be ironic and funny in a cruel sort of way. Because what sort of king gets crowned with thorns and is enthroned on a cross? Only a very pitiful sort of king in Pilate's mind. And yet, in spite of that irony, the sign was true. That sign over the cross testified to the fact that Jesus really and truly was the king of the Jews. But you know that Pilate wasn't the only one who gave a sign testifying to the identity of Jesus that day. God would also give signs so that anyone who was paying attention might know that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And truly, this is the Son of God. And that's what we want to look at today. In these few verses, we have three important signs that testify to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished through his death on the cross. Uh, And so we're just going to work through these signs and see the testimony that they are bearing to the identity and work of Christ. First, we find here that there is a sign involving a curtain. And this curtain is giving a testimony to Jesus and his work. The testimony of the curtain. Secondly, we're going to find that there's an earthquake. There's this great catastrophe. And we're going to find that this catastrophe is also bearing witness to Christ, to his person and work, the testimony of the catastrophe. And finally, we'll see that there is also this commander, this centurion, who testifies to the identity of Christ. And so we'll see the testimony of the curtain, of the catastrophe, and of the commander. And the testimony of the curtain is plain before us in verse 51, where we read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, That little word that is translated in your ESV Bible as behold uh, can sometimes be used as a temporal indicator of uh, simultaneity. Uh, that something is happening at the same moment. Uh, so, for example, if you were using the, e- the NIV instead of the ESV, you'll note that they translate it completely differently. They translate it, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, I'm not sure entirely which is the better translation. I, I think both of them serve the point, behold, or at that moment. The point is, that we are meant to understand that this sign of the tearing of the curtain happens in concurrence with the death of Jesus. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, 
And at that very moment, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, what curtain are we talking about? Well, we're, of course, talking about the temple curtain. There are two curtains in the temple. There's an outer curtain and there's an inner curtain. This is referring to that inner curtain, that curtain that served as a veil into the most holy place in the temple, what is sometimes called the Holy of Holies. You might remember that when God gave instructions to Moses about how to construct the temple, he gave very specific instructions about this veil. It was to be made of blue and purple and scarlet threads, and they were all to be woven together with fine linen, and then woven into the design of this curtain were images of cherubim, uh, those same sort of guardian angels that God had stationed at the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve are expelled and a cherubim is stationed there with a flaming sword? indicating that they could not come back into the presence of God. Those same sort of guardian angels are are represented as covering over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbolic picture of God's throne. These cherubim were the protectors of God's holy presence. They were guarding the way. They were blocking the path of access to God's throne. No one was allowed to enter into God's presence save one person, the high priest. And that person only once a year and never without blood. Blood to to bring in and to sprinkle over the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid that covered that throne box inside of which was the law. The covenant that had been broken. That God's people had transgressed. Blood needed to cover that seat of propitiation so that there was a barrier of blood between God's holiness and his footstool. That's what the curtain was. The curtain served as this continual reminder of man's guilt on the one hand and his need for atonement on the other. And it was an ever-present barrier between God and man. Some 500 years later, when David detailed the plans for that permanent tabernacle that we call the temple... Things were very much the same, except the curtain became significantly larger. Uh, And then by the time of the second temple, it became larger still. Uh, During the time of Jesus, this curtain was some 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. This roof is about 40 feet tall. Another 20 feet, wider than this stage. Uh, According to Jewish tradition, 
This veil was nearly four inches thick. This was not the flimsy drapes that many of us have hanging in our living rooms. Right? This was not some airy, sheer linen curtain. This curtain was a textile of substance. It was massively thick and heavy. It was a wonderful piece of tapestry. And at that very moment that Jesus cried out and yielded up his spirit and died, that veil began to tear from the very top all the way down to the very bottom. Imagine if I took this bulletin and I just... You can hear it without me even doing it. Because you've heard it before. Imagine that tearing sound when you stand up too quickly and your jeans rip apart. Now imagine a four-inch thick veil. The sound of that being ripped apart. And given the emphasis in the Gospels on it being torn from top to bottom, I think that is exactly what we are meant to think. It is not a tearing, of course, by human hands, but it is as though the invisible hands of God are tearing this curtain apart. And what triggers that moment is the death of his son. At that very moment, when Jesus breathes his last, God gives the world a sign. He gives to the high priest serving in Jerusalem a sign. He gives to the whole Levitical order and to the Jewish people a sign. And what is the meaning of this sign? Well, what is the purpose of the veil? What is its significance in the religious worship of the Old Testament? When you think about that significance, I think the meaning of the sign begins to become clear. Is that in the death of Christ, things have profoundly changed. Something is ending. And something is beginning. What is ending is that entire old order of worship. The tearing of the curtain marks the end of that sacrificial system. When Jesus, our great and better high priest, offers up himself a sacrifice for sin, all of the types and all of the shadows, as amazing and grand and glorious as they were, they're all done. The final sacrifice has been offered. And so all the shadows have found their fulfillment in the death of Christ. That moment when Jesus breathes his last, his obedience and his sacrifice render that entire old covenant order obsolete. When Christ the substance has acted, there is no longer a need for the shadows. And so not only is the old covenant order ending, But the new covenant order is beginning. That's why the author of Hebrews says that with the change of the priesthood and the change of the covenant, there's a change in the law. 
The old is ended and a new and better covenant is instituted in the blood of Christ, a covenant with better promises and with a better mediator, a covenant which is no longer centered in the earthly Jerusalem at a temple made with hands, but is centered in the heavenly Jerusalem before the very throne of Jesus Christ. Not before a representation of that throne, but before that very throne of grace. That is why in our new covenant worship, we don't go to any particular city. We don't travel to Jerusalem. We don't go to that temple. Here today, we have ascended by faith into that heavenly temple. We worship anywhere and everywhere in spirit and in truth. The day is coming, Jesus told the woman at the well, and is now here. When you will no longer worship the Father in Jerusalem, but you will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and the Father is seeking such worshipers. And in a way, this tearing of the veil also would foreshadow what would happen to that entire temple complex in 70 AD when God showed the world that that order had forever ended. The tearing of the veil not only signaled the end of Old Covenant worship, it also signaled the end of all Jewish preferences. And it began the ingrafting of the Gentiles. To that point in history, no other nation had known the covenantal privileges and covenantal advantages that Abraham's children had known. And there were many, right? Paul says, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But in the death of Christ and the tearing of that veil, those who were once separated from Christ those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, those who were strangers to the covenants of promise, Paul says, those who were without hope and having no hope and without God in the world are now brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of you are testifying to it. Because you are the nations. We are the Gentiles. And in this way, the sign of the tearing of that curtain is a powerful sign. But it's accompanied by other signs. We've considered the testimony of the curtain. Let's consider the testimony of this catastrophe. While the curtain is being torn, something else begins to happen. We read, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Here again, God is testifying to the identity and the work of his son. All of the verbs here are passive. The earth was shaken. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened. The dead were raised. That is to say, the earth and the rocks and the tombs and the dead are not acting themselves. 
they are being acted upon, and they are being acted upon by God himself. God is shaking the earth. He is splitting the rocks. God is witnessing to the work of his son. Quakes. And before there were active shooter drills in school, we had earthquake drills in school. And so every month or so, we would have a duck and cover drill. We would duck under our desks, and we would place our hands over our heads in the hopes that if anything fell, we would not be harmed. We lived near some pretty serious fault lines, and there was always the fear that the big one was going to hit. I I can remember actually living through uh, several big ones. Some of you might remember watching... Uh, the World Series in 1989 when uh, the, the earthquake that impacted the Bay Area and collapsed the Bay Bridge, right? Some 3,500 people were injured and nearly 70 people died. Uh, the rocks were split. The earth shook. It was a death-bringing catastrophe. And while this earthquake is also catastrophic, Note that it does not bring death. It is bringing life. God, by means of this quake, is causing the rocks to split open and the tombs of the saints to break open. And God is raising the dead. Matthew here brings together the death and the resurrection. The dead are brought to life by the death of Christ. The tombs are opened by the attending quake. But they don't actually come out of the tombs until after the resurrection of Christ. You notice that he he tells us that there was this delay. Why the delay? All of the other gospel writers leave this detail until following the resurrection of Jesus. But I think Matthew wants to bring the death and resurrection together and show us that that they are one event. And I think the reason for the delay is very simple. It's because of what Paul says about Christ. That he is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And I think Matthew uh, brings it in here for theological reasons, namely because he wants us to understand that it is through the death of Christ that death itself is being defeated. Augustine put it this way, he died because it was expedient that by his death he might kill death. Jesus died that an exchange might be affected by a kind of heavenly contract that man might not see death. What an exchange. Note also the emphasis on the bodies of the saints being raised. I don't know why, but I I particularly love that. It includes that word, the bodies of the saints. I think it's important to say that God loves his people, body and soul, that the redemption that Jesus is accomplishing at the cross is a complete and it is a total redemption. It is a redemption not just of your soul. It is a redemption of your body. 
That's why we confess every Sunday, we confessed it today, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We do not look for a future new heavens and a new earth filled with disembodied spirits. That is not what we look for. That is not the Christian hope. We look for a new heavens and a new earth populated with people. With the embodied souls of those who have been raised up in glory. And with the death of Christ, we are given this cataclysmic sign of hope, which reminds us, as John Owen said, that here in the and then added to the testimony of the curtain and added to the testimony of this catastrophe, we hear that final testimony of this commander. We read it in verse 54, that when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Luther made this beautiful point on this verse. He said that we have here in the confession of the soldier, the sign of the power of the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, not only awakens dead bodies, it awakens dead souls. Bodies and souls. Note how the confession of the soldier answers to the mockery of the Jewish leaders. What did they say when they were mocking him? They said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They said, he trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And now here as this soldier and the militia with him witness the death of Christ and the attending signs, what do they say? Truly, this was the Son of God. It's not the Jewish crowds that say it. It's not the chief priests. It's not the scribes or the elders. They are all there. They all joined in the mocking. It's none of those who should be able to interpret the signs. It's none of those who should recognize their Messiah. Instead, it's the Gentile soldier who makes the great confession. The same confession that Peter makes. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, has revealed this to you. So it is here that through the death of Christ, the Father is revealing His Son. The spiritually dead are being regenerated and brought to life. That they too might confess that Christ is the Son of God. So what are we to make of these testimonies? The testimony of the centurion reminds us that God continues to use the cross of Jesus Christ to bring those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to spiritual life. Paul says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, 
but God. But God raised you up. And he gave you life. And God continues to do that through the proclamation of the death of his son, that those who were once far off might be brought near through the blood of Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, know that today you might be brought near. That this gospel word, this message of the death of his son is as effective today as it was for the soldier on that day. God brings people to life. Secondly, the testimony of the catastrophe reminds us that even as he awakens those who are spiritually dead through the preaching of the cross, one day he will raise the bodies of all of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. This testimony testifies to the resurrection and to the life that God brings about through the death of His Son. Christ is the first fruits of that one grand harvest of resurrection, and in His death is the death of death. And it is the beginning of what Peter says for you is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the testimony of the curtain, it testifies to the new and living way that Christ has opened through his flesh. As I was thinking about it this week, I began to think that the whole book of Hebrews is just one big commentary on the rending of the veil. (laughs) Of the testimony to the tearing of that curtain of the end of the old sacrificial order and the beginning of the new and the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Listen to the way that the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 10. Dr. Moe actually asked if we could begin our, our prayer time, pre-service prayer time. He always reads scripture. He says, can we, can we start it like 20 minutes early just so I can read all of chapter 9? Read chapter 9. I'm going to read from chapter 10 as he distinguishes between the old priestly order and the new priestly order in Christ. This is what he says. He says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. That's the point he made in chapter 9. That the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to take away sin. It cannot cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And those priests stood every day offering the same sacrifices that could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. I love this image. Think of that high priest. Think of him dressed with his breastplate, bearing 12 stones with the names of the tribes of Israel, and and on his head a turban, holy to the Lord. 
He is the representative for every single Israelite. And once a year, he goes into that most holy place with a cord tied around his foot. He goes in there and he he sprinkles blood over the mercy seat to make atonement for sin. And then he scurries out. But what does Jesus do? When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you hear what he's saying? When he passed through the curtain, he left it open. He didn't scurry out. He sat down at the right hand of God. And he made that way for us to come into God's presence. And the author of Hebrews tells us the results. The result is that there is a new covenant where God's law is not written on tablets of stone, but is written on the hearts and the minds of his people. And the result is that in this new covenant, there is actually accomplished forgiveness of sins. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There is a cleansing of the conscience of the worshiper. And the result of that cleansing of the conscience is that you can come boldly into God's presence. This is the grand conclusion. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, with our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Calvin put it this way, thus the rending of the veil was not only an abrogation of the ceremonies which existed under the law, it was the opening of heaven. That God may now invite the members of his Son to approach him with familiarity. God has opened heaven. And beloved, this is our hope. Our hope that, what does the author of Hebrews say? It enters into the holy place where it is anchored to God's throne. Our hope is Christ. Beloved, that is what these signs continue to testify to us today, that we have forgiveness, that we have assurance, that we have the privilege of drawing near to God through the blood of Christ, that we join in the confession of that soldier. Truly, this is the Son of God. And with that confession, we have the hope of an embodied life in His presence. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, how we thank you for the word of the gospel. How we thank you for the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. How we thank you for all of the things that his death has accomplished on our behalf. How we thank you that we no longer worship according to the shadows, but we worship in the substance and the realities by faith. How we thank you that you have opened heaven wide for us through the veil of his flesh and that we have a right of access to come with boldness and to approach what is now now a throne of grace and mercy. For your blood has been shed over all of the demands of the law and we have a cleansed conscience. Lord, would you use these signs then to build us up in faith that we might hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering and that we might walk in a manner worthy of your calling, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see that day, that day of resurrection and gladness, that day when the trumpet sounds and you call us home, that day, when we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. Help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this table, of course, uh, this is the sacrament that the Lord gives us week in and week out to remind us of his death and resurrection for us. I'm just going to keep going back to the author of Hebrews here. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus said, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired of me, but a body you have prepared for me. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he gave these elements to his disciples and he said, This is my body that's given for you. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. These elements, the bread and the wine, signify the body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God prepared a body for his son. A human body. A body that was one of our brothers. Made like us in every way except without sin. And Jesus offered up that body and that blood on the cross in order that these bodies might be raised up, that we might have hope of life. And so even as we come here today and we take, as from the hands of the Lord, His body and His blood, we are meant to remember all that He has done and that these bodies shall live because He lives. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would would bless these sacraments to us. Lord, as we come and approach your table today, we thank you for the body and blood of our Savior. Lord, we thank you that you did not spare your own Son, but gave him up for us all. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not hesitate, but you set your your face like flint for the cross that you recognized what your body was for. It was to be exchanged for 
the sinful souls of many. And Lord, we ask now that you would take these ordinary elements and that you would set them apart for this holy use so that now as we receive them in faith, as we receive the body and blood of our Savior, that you might encourage our faith and build us up and comfort us in the gospel, that you might cleanse our consciences from dead works in order that we might serve the living God. We ask that you would do all of this even as we participate in this meal. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen. This meal is a family meal. Uh, To participate in this meal, it means that you have that fellowship with God restored and you have fellowship with one another. And so let me just uh, not only invite you to come to this table, but let me also warn you from coming to this table. If you have not passed through that veil of Christ's flesh in faith, if you have not been reconciled to God through the blood of His Son, you do not have fellowship with Him. And in fact, all that is in this meal is a picture of the judgment and the curse that awaits. But God also calls upon everyone who hears the proclamation of the gospel to repent and believe. And I would call upon you today, even though you might let these elements pass before you, do not let Christ pass. Call out to Him in faith. Cry out in your heart. And He promises to save everyone who calls upon His name. And so today, that is, that is not meant to warn the, the faithful believing. It is meant to warn those who know they are unbelieving. If you're, if you're here and you're believing, but you're struggling with doubt, you're struggling with your sin, this meal is an encouragement to you because this meal reminds you that your conscience is cleansed through the blood of Jesus. And you should come and you should find encouragement and you should rest in the grace of Christ and you should renew your zeal to walk in more and better obedience.